So as we continue in Romans 12, uh, 1 through 2, the, uh, uh, this is, of course, the third sermon from this passage. We'll continue to go through this. As I said, this, this passage is the, uh, um, the foundation for the rest of, of Romans. As, and so there's, there's a lot going on here. And, our, and as it, it is what we're going to build on, I thought we would kind of sort of slow down through this, which I know you guys were shocked. I would slow down through part of it, but uh, this is the way it is. Um, I must admit, I, I'm a little um, nervous, somewhat overwhelmed this morning. I mean, I always get nervous. I always feel overwhelmed uh, at the prospect of, of standing for anyone and saying, thus saith the Lord. I mean, that just, that, that calling is just a just huge part and, and, and a huge responsibility, and, and, and as well as a wonderful blessing. And, but, um, you know, and, and I hope I never lose that perspective of, of recognizing the challenge of this. Uh, but this morning it feels a little different for me, that, to, to be honest with you. You know, one of the reasons I meet with Mark and, 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 and Jack and before with Rick was because it was always about not what has God said to me, but what has God said in His Word. And it was so what, what is God saying? What is God saying through His Word? And, and certainly I, I pray that what I'm going to say this morning is absolutely true to the text and to the foundation of Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. But I have to be honest with you, today this sermon feels a little more topical to me, and it's a lot because of whatever's going on in my life. And uh, that concerns me. Uh, but I feel like this is, here we go. Um, this is what we, God would have us to have this morning. In uh, tw the year 2020, last year, Barner Research Group did a survey trying to measure the state of the church. That's what they called it, the state of the church. They asked anyone that could get to respond to the question they called, a hundred uh, questions concerning 105 different social issues. Um, anywhere from gun control to abortion, all these different uh, same-sex marriage, um, sexual identity, all these different questions, 105 different issues. And they compiled the results. Um, I hope the results shock you. I'm afraid they, they probably won't. But um, of the 105 different social issues, how many do you think? So they, they broke them up. So they had this one group that these group identified themselves as born-again evangelicals. This is how they identified themselves. Born-again evangelicals. Out of these 105 different issues, how many would you think these, this group of born-again evangelicals scored statistically different? Meaning more than one standard deviation. They, they, basically, how, out of the 105 different issues, how many would you guess the, 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 these born-again evangelicals scored statistically different. Their opinion about these social issues was different than unbelievers. Half? A third? How about nine? 92% of the issues, for 92% of the issues, the, these born-again evangelical Christians scored no statistical difference in the rest of the world. How can this be? What's going on? How can it be that, that we in the church 
look at these social issues and agree with the world. There's something wrong with that. There's something fundamentally wrong with that. There's a term we hear a lot today, and that is worldview. But I don't think we hear about it enough in our churches. We need to understand how worldview shapes us and how it relates to our life in Christ. And to be honest with you, I believe this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 too. Um, and so, so pray with me, pray for me, and I'll pray for us as we try to apply these truths of Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2 to our lives. And I would like to just take a moment and just pray again. Lord God, as we as 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 we just as go through this, I pray God that you would just speak. Lord, this would be true to your word, true to this text, and it would be true to our lives. God, I pray you would just keep me from error, protect all of us, Lord, from uh, futile thinking. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul wrote, as he made this transition, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, I call this, this section kind of a, a primer on worship or, or, or a text. Teach us how to worship. So, so Paul has, has laid out this gospel and, and he's taught us all about the gospel. And, and, and we understand that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And more than just that, we understand what salvation is now. Salvation is not just being saved from going to hell. That salvation is being saved from the penalty of sin and, as we said, from the power of sin and finally from the presence of sin. And furthermore, hopefully by this time, we understand what the penalty of sin is. When we say the penalty of sin, when we say the salvation is being saved from the penalty of sin, hopefully by this time we understand that we're not going to answer that question by saying the penalty of sin is going to hell. Or because the problem with that is that would give you the ideal then that what you're saved for is to go to heaven. No, the penalty of sin is you are separated from Christ. You're separated from God. The penalty of sin was not going to hell. The penalty of sin was separation from Christ. Separation from God. That's our penalty. Which, I, you know, this, as we've said before, and, and it's kind of funny, you were at, mentioned Sunday school about what is death. Well, if Jesus Christ is life, he says that in John and other places, Jesus Christ is life, when you're separated from him, you are dead. That's what real dead is. Real dead is to be separated from Jesus Christ. Nothing to do with that physical body. Nothing to do with it. That's just a picture for us. That would be no more true than me holding up a picture of, of, of Carol and saying, this is Carol. You know, here, this is Carol. You might look at it and say, well, she looks awful flat and short. <laughs> well, yeah, 
Because that's not really her. You know, that's Carol. She's a person. Well, we look at that and we look at a dead body and say, well, that's dead. No, that's not. That's just a picture. Dead is to be separated from Christ's life. So, so we know now that, sal- that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation, and salvation we're saved from the, 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 the penalty of sin, which is separation from God, now for we're alive, and the power of sin in our lives, and eventually, by God's grace, we're looking forward to that time of being saved from the presence of sin. And may it come soon, right? So, so Paul is talking about this. And so because of this, now we're ready to worship. And we said, we, we said this, and we've already looked at the first three parts of this. First, there was a call to worship. Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers. He was calling forth to worship. This, this, and we said that word was to come alongside or urging us, cheering us on. I appeal to you to worship. And then we said the incentive to worship. We have this incentive or force. The, the impetus to worship is from the mercy of God. I appeal to you by the mercy of God. That, that what, what moves us to worship is God's mercy. And, and this is not the generic mercy, I'm sorry, the generic mercy that, that we see all around us, that, that God has in the whole world, in that He's not pouring His wrath on us, His wrath out on us every day, even though we deserve it. You know, there, there's this, when you read about the storms that hit, the, hit, hit snowstorms or tornadoes or hurricanes or earthquakes, you know, we really, every time we should read that and, and, and be moved to thank God for His mercy. Because, I mean, we know from Scripture that's to teach us. They didn't deserve it any more than we deserve not to get it. Every time we did not have a tornado, it's by God's mercy and only by God's mercy. So there's this generic mercy that we see all around us everywhere. But this is not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about that specific mercy, the mercy that God has for the elect, that we have that we've looked upon Him, we've looked at God, we've seen Him in all of His glory, just as Isaiah did, and we knew that we should be destroyed. We knew, just like Isaiah, woe is me, I, I'm undone, I have seen the glory of God. I have, I, God should have destroyed me, but He didn't. Instead, he removed your iniquity, and you were able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This mercy, this is the force of the impetus, the force of worship. You've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when you knew you deserved God's judgment. Instead, you saw it and were able to give glory to God. In the last week, or the, two weeks ago, we looked at the response of worship. You are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And, and we looked at that and talked about what that meant. And now this week we'll look at the process of worship. So how do we worship? We know we are to present our bodies to living sacrifice, but how do you do this? How, what does that look like for you? And finally, we'll finish up with the outcome of worship and, and the picture of worship. And by God's grace, We'll finish those two this year. I'm, I'm feeling confident of that. So it's only February. So we've got plenty of time to finish this year.
But um, and, and as we finish out this outcome in the picture of worship. So with that said, we, in re, our response to seeing the mercy of God, our worship is to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Sounds great. But what, what does that look like? How do we do that? How do you present your body a living sacrifice? You know, if you were just to take that question and try to answer it, you'd probably get a, a huge variety of, uh, uh, of responses. If you went out and asked other people, so what does it mean to present your body as a living sacrifice? What does that look like? Some of the answers we'd get would probably things like singing and praising God. It might be things such as teaching or witnessing. You might even get answers like being a missionary. Well, uh, in other words, if you notice this, all those actions, all those responses focus on our actions. We focus on our actions. To present our bodies to living sacrifice, we have a tendency to focus on what do we do? How do we, how do, what, what, the things you have to, to do and to, to, to act upon. But notice, Paul does something really amazing here. He says, when he talks about we're to present our bodies to living sacrifice, he doesn't talk about changing the way we act. He says, no, you have to change the way you think. To present your body as a living sacrifice is not about acting different. It begins by thinking different. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice is not about changing the way you act. It's about changing the way you think. Or as Paul would say, changing your mind. And I, and I love how the Greek-English interlinear, interlinear translates this. It takes that, do not be conformed to this world. It literally reads, stop be ye being configured or conformed to this world. Stop doing that. Stop being configured. Stop continuing to be conformed to this world. Every day, we are being conformed or configured to the thinking of this world. And we need to stop this. And, 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 and while this is absolutely true, there's something else going on here that we desperately, desperately need to know and to recognize. When we look at the world, we need to know something about all believers, all unbelievers, sorry. When we look at the world, we need to know that all unbelievers, all have lost the ability to think reasonably. Unbelievers cannot think reasonably or rationally. And that included us before God opened our eyes. Before God opened our eyes, we could not think reasonably or rationally. And I know this is a huge statement. And to be honest with you, every time I say it, I feel a little bit arrogant. It makes me a little uncomfortable to say this. So let me explain. In the Garden of Eden, when all men fell in Adam, all of men fell. It's not just all men fell. All of us completely 
fell in Adam. We all lost our ability to reason. Romans 12, I'm sorry, Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God I'm sorry, the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So now I'm going to try to get this thing on. Sorry. All men everywhere became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, it's, it's extremely important to understand what I mean. I'm not saying that all unbelievers are stupid or cannot be taught or cannot be educated. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying they cannot reason. They cannot think rationally to a final conclusion. And we were just like them. Ephesians 4, 17-24. And, and I would encourage you to, 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 to turn there to Ephesians 4, 17-24 as we'll look at this several times. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in all of them due to the hardness of the heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put off and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. You see, there's an appearance of reason. There, there's a, an appearance of rationality in the world all around us. You know, we look at the world, and it looks like people are reasonable. Your next-door neighbor who's an unbeliever, they look reasonable. They look rational. They do. But if the Scripture's true, they're, they're, they're trapped in the futility of their minds. And see, this appearance was so strong that in the Middle Ages, the church at that time, even the church began to believe that men could reason without God. Thomas Aquinas, the, uh, that 12th century theologian of the church, taught that, that, Adam, that in Adam, men's self was corrupted, men's soul fell, but his mind, his reason, did not fall. This would mean that, that, that the truth could be reasoned or rationalized without the Bible. This was a teaching that just took the church and just was, he was the leading theologian of the day. And this was taught throughout the church and throughout Christendom, beginning in the 11th century. 
This thinking led to the humanism of the Renaissance and eventually to the revolt of that idea on the Reformation. See, it was not just the indulgences that the, revol- the Reformers were revolting against. It was the whole humanistic thought that man's reason would ever be equal to the Word of God. It, see, the total depravity of man was not just his soul, his nature, but also his mind. That, that, that doctrine, man was totally depraved. It's not that he could, he, his soul couldn't sign God. Even his mind was not able to reason out God, to reason out truth, to reason out meaning. Man was lost in his futility of mind. Therefore, truth could only be found in the Scriptures, sola scriptura, Scriptures alone. See, the Bible is not just a religious book that tells us how to be saved. It's a book of truth that tells us how to live. It tells us what meaning, about meaning and value to our lives. It it tells us what purpose means. It's not just about getting to heaven. And it's become that to our church. Not just, not just, the problem is not what the way the world looks at it. The world will never understand it. The problem is even in our church, it has become just a book of salvation. Hey, hey, it gets me saved. What more do I need? I don't need anything else than that. See, I believe that 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 all believers that the church is not investing themselves in the Word of God today. You know, all my life, I've heard about preachers talk about how we have more Bibles today than any time in history, but we read it less and less. I mean, I'm sure that all of you heard that and, and, and heard preachers and churches complain about that forever. The problem is I believe most people don't believe that the Bible is applicable to their lives. Oh, yeah, it's, it's about, it teaches me how to get saved. It teaches me about, being G, about Jesus. It teaches me about, about him dying on the cross for my sins. It teaches me that, that if I believe in him, I'll have eternal life. Got that taken care of. I'm done. What more do I need? That's it. Do I need more than that? I asked my class, and it, I mean, this is—it's a good class. Do you need more? And they struggle to answer the question. We have dispensational saying, "Old Testament doesn't matter to you." We've got reformed. We've got reformed people. All around us saying, you know what? Unless the New Testament refers to it, the Old Testament has no place in your life. Because it's all about Jesus. Meaning, it's all about getting saved. Got it down. Check. I'm done. You've heard me complain before. The the ideal that you could buy a Bible that doesn't the Old Testament, and they sell them every day, and they give them away all the time. We've seen them. How many times have you have, have seen or probably even owned at one time a Bible with just Psalms and the New Testament? What does that tell you about the importance of the Old Testament? You don't need that. All you need is Jesus. 
get saved. Now, I do realize, and I even wrote this in my notes because I knew it was going to happen. I've gotten pretty far on my soapbox. But I think this is where we are. Fallen man is futile in their thinking. Listen to Ephesians 4 again, that 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He said, this, that's the way the world, you look at the world and they're walking in the futility of their minds. Their minds are futile, they, fruitless. You, there's nothing that comes from it. Doesn't mean they're not intelligent. Doesn't mean they're not smart. It just means they can't reason. They can't think rationally. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance is in them due to the hardness of the heart. They have become callous, have given themselves to sensuality, greedy practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you've learned Christ. And I love what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, 17. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught at him. He's making this assumption. He said, you've learned different. Assuming you've really learned about him. Man, what, what a word for our day today. Assuming that you've heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the truth. That doesn't mean he speaks the truth. He said, I am the truth. I am what reality is. I am what, what purpose is. I am what meaning is. You want to know those things? Look at me. I'm the truth. And see, all men, all believers, all sorry, all men, all unbelievers, and all unbelievers and all believers before they became believers were in that state. Every one of us. Every one of us were caught in that futility of mind. Everyone's were walking that and living in that. Until we learned about Christ. Assuming that we've heard about him and we're taught in him. He said, I'm assuming you know this. That you know that the truth is in Jesus alone. And you understand what that means. I'm assuming you got this. And you no longer walk in the futility of your mind. Or it's I love how the King James says it in Proverbs. Most of us know that old King James verse in Proverbs. For as a man thinketh, but the whole verse, the whole, whole section is really worth knowing. Proverbs 23, verses 6 through 9. It's about changing our thoughts, not just our actions. Proverbs 23, 6. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. I'm reading from the New King James because it's just why well, I've always learned it, right? So, so uh, do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. The morsel you have eaten, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. Oh, he's going to act nice. He's acting really great. Oh, don't, I, man, I'm, have, have at it. Eat and drink. But that's not who he is. As he thinks in his heart, that's who he really is. So to present your body as a living sacrifice is not about changing your actions. 
It's about changing your worldview. See, this we need in our church today is a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview. And the reality is, most of us don't have it. I wish I, wasn't, I, wish I could say that most of, the, most of us struggle with it. Because we were all taught to have a different worldview. In the world all around us is telling us to have a different worldview. According to, again, Barnard Research, less than half of the pastors that they interviewed, even knowing these are the questions, less than half the pastors could demonstrate a biblical worldview. Pastors, acting pastors of church, could demonstrate a biblical worldview. This is just even answering questions, let alone living it out and actually believing it. So I've shared with you a chart, and it should be on the screen that, as well. Uh, but if you can't see it, and I know many people can't for one or another, it's a pretty common chart. It's easy to find online. It's, you can see it's a series of concentric circles with these labels. At the center is what is real, I'm sorry, what is real and worldview. Then going up is what is true, what is good, and what we do. And going down is belief, values, and behaviors. So what, 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 what the circle is trying to say, or, or what it's saying, is that another name for worldview is what is real. And corresponding to beliefs is what is true. And by values, we just mean what we think is good. So, and what we value or hold as good determines our actions and behaviors or what we do. And see, there's so much, so often we have a tendency to want to focus on what we do, our behaviors. And he said, the reality is we need to focus on, start at the center. See, we all are trained behaviorists. Unfortunately, we are. Um, most famous behaviorist is B.F. Skinner. And every one of your teachers and my teachers were somewhat taught by B.F. Skinner. Right? If you, if you taught in school, you, you know that name. He was a behaviorist. That's what he, that's what he, what he did. And he, dis, he discipled teachers, still is discipling teachers all over the world about being a good behaviorist. And you go to school, and it's what you learn. It's part of our educational system. See, behaviorists focus on that outside ring. Change what you behave and change what you do and, and all this. And far too often, that's what happens in our in our churches, and I'm sorry, in our homes as well. I see it all the time. I see kids at Maryville Christian School that have been trained to to behave like a good Christian. They know all the right words. They know all the right all the right phrases. They know just how to act. They have been conditioned to behave a certain way. Because they know if they come in with the right words and the right answers and all of this, then their parents are going to love them, the parents are going to treat them nice, the teachers are going to love them, they're going to be great people, and they're going to get a pat on the back, and they're just going to say, good job. But their heart's not there. I know that because when they leave school and they get encouragement to do something else, they act a different way. The heart's where it matters. So let me see if I can explain this. And I'll use a native person to, to, in Amazon as a way to explain this. So imagine this. A native person, 
way back in the Amazon who sees a, a, a person with a flash, flashlight for the first time. So here you are. You're, you're part of this tribe in the Amazon, and you, somebody walks up to you, and they have a flashlight. And the first time you've ever seen a flashlight. And, and, and here it is. Here's a person that can make light come out of a stick at their command. And, 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 and you're amazed by it. Well, what is real to that native person or the worldview of that native person is magic. Magic is real to them. Magic is a part of their worldview. That's what's real to them. What is true, or, or their beliefs, is that only powerful people can do magic. That's, that's how they believe it. So what is good, or what I value, is power, and how it relates to me. So this determines how I act. I might worship him or serve him, or I might attack him and kill him before he attacks me. So that I can, I can because that's what's, because he's powerful. So my actions were set by my worldview, not the other way around. As believers, when we sin, this is not about our behavior. It's because of our worldview. It's about our view of God. See, if this world is all that is real, or at least if this world is the most real to me, if what I care about is this world and the things of this world, and this is the most real to me, then what is true, what is most important to me, is the things I live for today. I'm going to live for this world. Because it's the most real to me. It's, it's, the most, it's the most tangible to me. So then, what is good? Now, if this world is the most real, and the things around me is, is the most, most important, or, 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 or the most true, then what is good? What is good is making the most of today. Having comfort and peace. Giving them things I want. That, that's, that's what's good. That's, that's what I value. It's living for today, right? So then how do I act? I act like the things around me become my source of joy and peace. It's the things around me that make me happy. So I, I want things around me that will make me comfortable. I want things around me that will make me joyful. I want things around me that give me peace because this world is the most real to me. So if I struggle with prayer in my life, I don't have a sin problem. I have a worldview problem. I don't see God as holy and the answer and, and, and see it about Him. <clears throat> if I struggle with loving God's Word, I don't have a sin problem. I have a worldview problem. It's not about changing our behavior. It's about changing the way we think and see. So presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice comes from changing the way we think, not changing the way we act. Because we can act differently. We're good at that. We're all good performers. We've learned how to do that. We've learned how to act like a good person, like a good believer. We, we can do that really well. To get what we want. So people pat us on the back and say, good job. 
But Paul says, no. To present your body as a living sacrifice, you've got to change the way you think. This starts up here, not out here. Be not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And see, Paul says that this will happen. Back to Ephesians 4. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. See, we need a better view of God. It's no coincidence that this is how Paul describes salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6. As Paul's talking about salvation, he doesn't say it's about how you act. It's about your view of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Christ's sake. For it is God who has commanded light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, that's, that's where salvation is. It's changing that worldview. You have a different view. That's what salvation is. You look, and for the first time, Christ is real. This is what's real. This is what's true. That's the heart of your worldview. He says in Ephesians 2, we need the eyes of our heart enlightened. See, if you're struggling with sin, the answer is not to try harder. The answer is to see Christ. It's about seeing Christ. We keep coming back to this, guys. When we're in the midst of our struggles and our, and our, and our worries or our pain, we don't want to be a good behaviorist. We want to come back and say, God, I need a better view of you. I need to see you as holy. And I need to see your word as from you as holy. I need to see this. See, because this is more than just the story of Jesus dying on the cross. This is more than this. This is, this is telling us what's true, what's meaningful. The whole thing is how we live. See, we didn't learn Jesus as just a get-out-of-jail, get-out-of-hell-free card. We learned him as true, as truth, reality. Assuming you've learned him at all. So our prayer is, God, we need a better view of you. We need to change our view. Because seeing you as real will change our worldview. When we see you as real, when we see you as, as you are, truly are, then we'll change what we believe and what we value, and that will change our actions. It doesn't go the other way. And, and, and so often, so often, I think it, it comes off, people... Talk about changing your actions, acting different, doing different. And if you try to start there, 
We know what that happens. See, I can guilt people into doing the right thing, right? I'm a parent. We learned how to do that. I think that's the first class as a parent. How do you guilt your kids into doing what you want them to do? I did it for years. But that's how I was learning. I was taught. All of us were. But the problem is, if you can get them to, to behave that way, all you do is produce a really good legalist. Not necessarily a follower of Christ. See, that comes from a different worldview. That comes from the inside out. And they'll never, the problem is you can never change the inside by starting on the outside. It doesn't go that deep. So we need to pray. We need a better view of Christ, a better view of God. Because Paul said that's the only way to present your body as a living sacrifice.